This talk is brought to you by iBiology.org, and this audio was taken from a video available on our website. Hi, my name is Philip Keller, and I'm a group leader at the Chanelia Research Campus. And um, uh, a key focus of the research in my lab is the development of new microscopes and computational methods uh, for image analysis. And our efforts uh, in technology development to this end um, are also motivated by our desire to investigate and understand a fundamental question in biology. And this question is, how does an entire functioning embryo uh, form from a single cell? Now, an embryo is a fairly complex biological system that comprises numerous tissues and organ systems, um, which all um, have fairly intricate three-dimensional architectures, tissue architectures, and uh, also remarkable functional capabilities. So how does something like this form from scratch? Um, how do the cells in the embryo divide, move, um, interact with each other, change their shape, differentiate, um, to gradually give rise to this you know, complex embryo? Um, and given that there are so many cells uh, forming during early embryogenesis, how do these myriad cells coordinate their dynamic behaviors? Now, there are many aspects uh, of this process that we don't really understand yet. Um, we do know that it's uh, certainly a highly dynamic process at many different scales. And so, um, in order to work towards a comprehensive understanding, um, it is uh, an important prerequisite that we find a way to visualize and quantitatively analyze this dynamic behavior of all of these cells as an entire embryo develops. And so, we've always been curious to find a way to study embryonic development at the single cell level in a mammalian embryo so that we can gain uh, insights, make observations uh, in a biological model system that is relatively close to us humans. And so this goal um, led us to the mouse embryo. Um, so in the mouse embryo, if you want to follow the formation, development of the early uh, tissues and organs uh, from this initially a pluripotent ball of precursor cells, um, there's a 48-hour time window uh, shown down here from embryonic day 6.5 to 8.5 uh, that is of, of critical importance. During this period of time, um, the germ layers are forming. So we have the mesoderm, and the endoderm, and the ectoderm emerging. Uh, and then these germ layers in turn give rise to the early tissues and organs. So by the end of this 48-hour time window, um, we have an embryo that um, um, has, for example, um, a new tube, it has somites, it has an early stage gut, um, and it even has a beating heart. Now, the tricky part is to find a way to actually measure what all of the individual cells are doing in the embryo during this process. And in principle, if you want to um, do live observations and live measurements, um, uh, of cellular dynamics at a high spatial temporal resolution. Uh, light microscopy is a very powerful technology for that purpose. Uh, however, so far it's not been possible to, um, to image cellular dynamics across an entire developing embryo um, uh, at the single cell level. And so there are a number of um, challenges and difficulties um, associated with that goal. Uh, in general, it is um, and it's not trivial to image uh, mouse embryonic development because the mouse embryo is very sensitive to light. 
uh, which however we have to rely on in the light microscope to do the measurement. It also um, needs to be um, cultured, um, it needs a sophisticated culturing protocol in order to be kept alive and healthy in the microscope. Now if you want to measure uh, cellular dynamics and do live imaging of mouse development um, at the single cell level over this entire 48-hour time window, um, we have added challenges because now the embryo also grows by a factor of about uh, 200 in volume over this period of time, and it has fairly uh, complex optical properties. So for these reasons, we set uh, ourselves several goals in the study. The first goal is to um, develop a microscope that would enable us to do these types of measurements to image mouse embryonic development at the single cell level through gastrulation early agonogenesis at the single cell level. And then secondly, to use the resulting image data in order to analyze how cells divide, move, um, and essentially assemble in these early tissues. And then considering that uh, there are a number of resources uh, that would come out of such an investigation and also technology that needs to be developed, we also want to make sure that all of these resources and methods would be publicly and freely available to the entire scientific community. That would be the third goal. So starting with the first goal, um, we needed to find a way to develop a microscope that allows us to do long-term high-resolution imaging of mouse embryonic development. And so a key idea, a key concept in the microscope that I'm about to show you, and in fact in pretty much all of the microscopes we've developed in the lab so far, um, is the idea of using um, a light sheet for live imaging. Now, light sheet microscopy um, is, a, is an idea that's been around for a long time. The concept of light sheet microscopy dates back uh, more than 100 years, but over the last 15 years or so only has it really found its way into live imaging in biology. Um, and now, in these modern forms of light sheet microscopy, um, what we would do is to take the sample, which is shown here as a cylinder in this um, conceptual illustration, illuminate it from the side with a thin sheet of light, uh, of laser light. Uh, and so this light sheet is only a few micrometers thick. So it's a thin optical section uh, that we form that we illuminate with light. And then we would uh, detect the fluorescence that is emitted by molecules located within that illuminated plane and uh, form an image of that, of that fluorescent light. Uh, so for that purpose, we use a detection arm with a detection objective that is facing that illuminated plane. And then we have a camera further downstream in that arm that takes the image. Um, and so with a camera, that means immediately we can take, uh, you know, we can, we can acquire information for millions of pixels instantaneously. Um, we also uh, have so easy means to um, uh, move the light sheet relatively quickly um, in, in, in relation to the sample and thereby acquire an image sequence that represents the entire volume of the specimen. And so that means we can do volumetric imaging at the rate of uh, hundreds of millions of pixels per second if you use a state-of-the-art camera. So high speed, high imaging speed, is uh, one of the key strengths of light sheet microscopy. But um, there's another key advantage that's arguably uh, even more important. And so light sheet microscopes are also very gentle methods. Um, imaging methods. They minimize the amount of light that the sample is exposed to in order to get the, the image data. Um, now, let me show an example to explain that. In a conventional confocal microscope, if we image um, um, a plane, 
we would use um, a single objective that uh, where we first focus a light beam into the sample, and so the focus would be formed somewhere in that plane of interest. And so uh, the fluorescence light that is then emitted by the sample would be detected uh, through, would be collected by the same objective, and then we form an image. And so that, that arrangement and that approach means that even just to record this one single plane, we need to send light through um, a large fraction of the, of the volume of the sample. Basically, the light beam travels to regions above the focal plane, and then it diverges again and so, you know, moves to regions below the focal plane. So that introduces the risk of light exposure, and certainly of light exposure for sure, but uh, also potentially damage that is mediated by the light uh, in this large fraction of the volume. And so this is fundamentally different now in the light sheet microscope, where the light is really confined um, to that plane of interest, uh, so we don't illuminate any out-of-focus structures, and therefore also can't really damage them, um, and generally just reduce the amount of, of light uh, inside the specimen. And so that's a striking difference now, and particularly in volumetric imaging, because you can um, see from this comparison that um, with the conventional approach, um, if you look at the cumulative light load, um, we would have a linear increase in the uh, energy exposure in any local region in the sample, a uh, linear increase with the size of the volume and with the number of image planes uh, in the volume. Whereas in the light sheet microscope, um, we have a constant uh, light exposure, a local, a local light, ex uh, light load that is um, independent of the number of planes in the volume that we are recording. So light sheet microscope, microscopy is particularly useful um, for live imaging of relatively large samples uh, for that reason, um, and that includes certainly large developing embryos, such as a mouse embryo. And so based on this idea of light sheet imaging, um, we developed a multi-view light sheet microscope. And so the idea in the multi-view light sheet microscope is that we uh, illuminate the sample with um, two light sheets um, that come, uh, that enter the sample from opposite sides. Uh, and then we also have two detection arms uh, to record the images. So we can acquire opposing views of the sample simultaneously. And so this is useful when imaging a large sample that may not be uh, completely transparent um, because then the light, basically, as it travels to the sample, um, uh, you know, uh, encounters some amount of, uh, is subject to some amount of light scattering, uh, light absorption, and aberrations. And so, with the multi-view imaging, acquiring these multiple complementary views from multiple different viewpoints, uh, we can simply increase the fraction of the sample um, that is covered in high resolution and high image quality in the experiment. And so, if you look um, at, at a photo of this microscope now, as it actually exists in the lab, you can see the uh, incubation system here in the center, um, and then the sample chamber would be in the inside. Um, so this is how we then can control the temperature uh, and the atmosphere, it's critical for keeping the embryo healthy and alive. Um, inside the sample chamber, you would find this um, glass cylinder that we use for sample preparation. So, um, that's a cylinder that has about three millimeter uh, diameter um, and is filled with um, an extracellular matrix called matrichel. And so we would anchor the embryo at the location of its ectoplacental cone in that matrix. Uh, so that provides mechanical support. But at the same time, because the uh, cone is an extraterminic structure that we don't really need to image uh, to see what the embryo itself, what's happening in the embryo, we have uh, no optical so constraints on the, on the embryo, we have a clear view of the embryo itself. 
and there's a Teflon tube, a transparent tube surrounding the embryo um, to provide a small compartment for the culturing medium um, to keep the embryo healthy and alive. Um, and so bottom line is that with this arrangement, we have mechanical support. The embryo is not really floating around in space. Um, it's moving just a tiny little bit. Um, and there's no mechanical constraint on its growth, uh, which is important for this 48-hour time window that can grow so much. Uh, and at the same time, we have multi-view access. We can really image it from all sides uh, without blocking the view of the sample. So with what I've shown you so far, we basically have um, now a microscope. We can culture the embryo in the microscope, keep it alive, do the multi-view imaging. Um, but there's one more uh, important problem that we need to solve. And so one challenge that I you know, haven't told you about yet is that because the embryo is uh, relatively large, and you know, that concerns really um, most, you know, if not all, uh, large multicellular organisms, uh, certainly in a mouse embryo, it is large enough and complex enough in terms of its optical properties that it fundamentally perturbs the light that we have to rely on in order to acquire uh, images in the light microscope. So, you know, the way you can think about this is that inside the embryo we have, you know, some amount of variability of optical uh, properties. So, you know, as we look at different parts um, of, the, of the embryo, uh, different local, um, you know, local optical uh, constellations, different refractive indices, for example, it can vary with the local concentration, the, the local density of cells, or changes in the biochemical composition um, in local domains. Uh, and that all constitute some amount of optical heterogeneity in the specimen. Likewise, um, the optical properties of the sample um, can vary uh, not only um, you know, inside the sample, but also if you compare the sample to the um, uh, surrounding um, uh, cultural medium, we might have a mismatch there, so different optical properties as well. And so all of these factors uh, contribute to aberrations in the imaging process. Um, and that means, for example, for the light sheets, that um, they will change their path depending on the geometry of the surface of the embryo, and depending on exactly how they, how they enter the, the sample and you know, what the relative angle is relative to the surface. They can change their path, and they can change their path even further as they then travel uh, through the embryo. Um, and likewise, for the detection focal planes, we'll see an increase in curvature as we go deeper and deeper inside the sample. And so that means that the elevation planes and the detection planes um, are spatially mismatched. Um, so we are effectively acquiring images out of focus. Now, what's even worse is that the situation is also uh, changing as a function of time, because then now the embryo is not a static structure, but as I've mentioned before, it grows in size quite a bit and changes its shape. So to address this problem, we designed the microscope such that it will adapt itself to the sample. And so that involves uh, the following concept. So first of all, we introduce um, a number of degrees of freedom um, that allow us to, um, so these are digitally controlled, um, hardware-based uh, degrees of freedom. So we um, you know, have optical modules in the microscope to introduce them, uh, which allow us to change the geometry and the relative three-dimensional orientation of light sheets and detection focal planes. And then we have a control software that is fully automated that takes advantage of these degrees of freedom and uses them to map out the optical properties of the sample. So it will basically um, use uh, software modules that are um, automated and um, you know, that uh, try to determine and then also apply 
the optimal optical settings um, uh, across the imaging volume that are required to get image uh, data of the optimal of the highest quality of the highest resolution. Um, so as shown here in a little bit more detail, we have the advanced optical implementation to get the degrees of freedom, and then we have all of these software modules uh, on the right side uh, that do the real-time processing, uh, image processing, and data analysis. And so by using this kind of adaptive imaging approach um, and optimizing the microscope relative to the properties of the sample, we have the following uh, improvement now in image data quality. Um, as an example for two different time points of development, you can see the uncorrected state here on the right side, corrected state of the microscope on the left side, and so where we have basically a blurry, a fairly blurry image in the uncorrected state, we can now recover um, high spatial resolution and essentially, and that's the important part, the ability to reliably distinguish individual cells, uh, in particular neighboring cells, um, here in the, in the corrected state. So across the different germinates in the embryo, um, we have high resolution again. So by combining all of these features into a single instrument, in a single microscope, we basically now have the tool that we need in order to um, perform long-term high-resolution imaging um, of the mouse embryo at the single cell level. And so here's an uh, example of an imaging experiment performed uh, in this way, uh, where the mouse embryo expresses a fluorescent reporter in the cell nuclei. So each little blob here in this video is the nucleus of one cell. And um, we can see uh, a number of striking dynamic processes um, uh, in this recording and interesting structures that are forming. So early on in development, um, at the beginning of this 48-hour time window, you can see the amnion inflation, so ballooning of the embryos growing very quickly, popping out. Um, then there's the node forming um, over here, just moving over further to the posterior side. There's a big gap here on the left side, which is uh, there's a little hole that is, uh, represents the anterior intestinal portal of the embryo. And then from the left over to the right, uh, we have the midline, the anterior posterior axis of the embryo. Um, so along this uh, line, we would find a neural tube then at this time point. And then on the left and the right side, um, in the embryo left on the right side of the, of the midline, we have the somites forming. And then very late in this recording, um, particularly now at this last time point, you can see a dynamic stripey pattern here uh, in the anterior side, uh, which um, is produced by the onset of heart beating. Um, so while we're watching this video, the embryo actually formed um, a heart. And if we look deep inside the embryo, which is possible, for example, by using um, state-of-the-art near-infrared fluorescent reporters, um, we can see that many of these very deep structures are still visible at the single cell level. This is now a view from the anterior side, the camera facing the anterior end, uh, and we're imaging fairly deep, now several mi hundred microns deep inside. You can see slice by slice uh, the image volume that shows the beating heart. You can basically go all the way through that heart pretty much at the single cell level. And there's one more trick that we can use to improve image quality uh, even beyond what I've shown you so far. Um, and so the idea here is that instead of um, just acquiring the opposing views of the sample, um, which are provided by the two opposing uh, detection arms, we can rotate the embryo by 90 degrees mechanically um, uh, after each volume acquisition. And so record a second set of opposing views with the same detection arms, but now at an angle that is perpendicular to the set of the initial um, uh, um, opposite views. So that means we have recorded four views in total 
that are all orthogonal to each other. So it's a set of four views. And the advantage um, of this approach is so illustrated here in the upper panel, you can see um, um, you know, a particular image stack now shown with the two opposing views. Uh, in a light microscope, we would typically have um, anisotropic spatial resolution. And so that means for this view that you know, lateral resolution is typically significantly higher than axial resolution in the microscope. And so by looking at the side view of the volume, um, it's clear that the image is a, is a bit more blurry along this, along this axis uh, versus the, the lateral view, um, uh, versus the lateral dimensions in the, in the XY view. Um, but if you record the four orthogonal views, we can now combine all of the image data into a single volume. And um, basically by reconstructing that image data set uh, that combines information content from all views, we can now uh, obtain high resolution along all three axes simultaneously. Uh, so now then, if you look at the same uh, image volume, basically with this four-view imaging strategy, you can see it's much crisper, um, with particularly higher axial resolution. Um, and so that means it becomes even easier to uh, track, for example, cells in regions that are densely packed with cells. And so that brings me to um, the second goal. Now that we have these um, image data sets, uh, these time-lapse recordings of mouse embryonic development um, at the single cell level for this entire period of gastrulation early organogenesis, um, the next step is to uh, really find a way to convert the raw image data into a biologically meaningful representation um, to extract useful information about the dynamic cell behavior uh, in this recording. Um, and so what's challenging is, of course, that the data set is not only uh, fairly complex as far as um, uh, you know, the, the complexity of the embryos concerned, but it's also fairly large in size. So you have about 10 terabytes of image data uh, for every single embryo that is recorded. And the embryo in that video grows from a size of about 1,000 cells to all the way up to about 50,000 cells towards the end of that recording. And so you have hundreds of time points that capture the dynamic behavior of these thousands and then eventually tens of thousands of cells. So, you know, to analyze this and to extract that, um, we developed a computational pipeline that essentially allows us to do everything from uh, basic steps, such as um, uh, basic uh, large-scale data management um, and multi-view uh, image processing, uh, down to uh, the crucial steps of image segmentation, uh, tracking of cells, detection of cell divisions, and also registration of multiple embryos in space and time. And so over the next few slides, I'd like to show you a couple of examples of what these methods are capable of, and then also some examples of biological analysis that are enabled by these tools and what we can learn from the data. So one of the methods that we developed is the cell tracking framework uh, TGMM, which stands for um, tracking with Gaussian mixture models. Um, and an example of uh, tracking results obtained for one embryo uh, using TGMM is shown down here in the lower, in the lower row. So in this uh, video, we use a color code that represents the movement speeds um, of the cells. And now because it's an automated method, it's very convenient and fast to use, but it still makes some uh, mistakes. So um, linkages might not always be correct in time. And you could also lose cells temporarily and uh, therefore disconnect cell tracks in time, which makes it harder to analyze the dynamic behavior of the cells. So therefore we developed a second method, um, a statistical method, that um, is complementary to, to, uh, to TGMM and processes the output of TGMM. And it takes that data 
and then in a statistical way examines the um, neighborhood of each cell in the developing embryo um, and looks at the dynamic behavior and uses this information in a, in a statistical way that allows us to uh, correct for many of the most uh, common mistakes that happen uh, during automated tracking and in, in this course also ensure that cell tracks are continuous in time from the beginning to the end of the recording. That's much more useful then for the data analysis. And so if you combine TGMM and the, you know, the statistical method um, and produce a tracking database, we can in the next step use this information to build a dynamic fate map of the entire embryo. So you can think of this as a developmental building plan of the mouse embryo. Um, the way this works uh, technically is that we uh, take the last time point of the data set, the image data at the last time point, where we know that the cells have already assembled into tissues and organs. We can actually anatomically identify these structures just from looking at the last time point fairly clearly and thereby annotate uh, which tissues uh, cells contribute to. So each cell basically have that information about whether it's uh, part of the neural tube, the notochord, or the heart field, and so on. And so then from the, annotating this one time point, we have tissue labels that we can associate with the tracking database so that each track in the database has a, a, a label um, uh, linked to it. And with that information, we basically know immediately what the developmental origin of each tissue is, where it came from, um, you know, where it started out, uh, but also really have the entire sort of timeline of the development of this tissue in detail and in high spatial temporal resolution. Now, there's a lot we can do in terms of analysis now with a data set like this. Um, and, you know, even just from looking at the, at the results um, by eye, looking at this video of the, of the tracking database, um, there are some interesting things that stand out. You can, for example, see that um, already fairly early on, there's a remarkable level of separation, um, not very much mixing of cells, um, of different cell types, of precursor cells for different tissues, once these cells have emerged from the primitive streak. Um, but I would also like to point out that um, this is now reconstruction from a single embryo. And so we don't really know how variable development is and to what extent you know, this particular reconstruction, this particular embryo, can be considered to be representative of mouse development. In fact, we do know that embryos um, uh, of the same age actually vary quite a bit in terms of their size, their shape, and uh, their mental stage. You, know, you can see a couple of images over here, just by visually looking at them, it's clear they're not geometrically the same. If you look more closely from an anatomical perspective, you can also see the stage is not, is not really perfectly matched. So for that reason, we decided to reconstruct development in multiple individuals. You can see four here uh, with that same dynamic fate map uh, visualization from the previous slide. Uh, and then use this information from the multiple individuals in order to reconstruct um, a statistical representation of their development. Um, so for that purpose, we developed a method called HARDIS that allows us to register in space and time the development of uh, multiple embryos using anatomical landmarks. And then once they're registered in space and time, we basically can now analyze the local dynamic behavior of cells in all sorts of different parts, all different parts of the, of the embryo, um, while looking at corresponding spatial regions and at corresponding times in development um, across individuals. And so equipped with this um, tool, um, we made a transition from um, a dynamic fate map from one animal um, to a statistical fate map constructed from multiple embryos. And that's the result shown here. 
So we basically have now the information of the probability that cells in a local, um, in some you know, local domain in the embryo will give rise to a certain type of tissue. And we have that information as a function of, of space and time. And so that means the color code now here is not just solid colors as it was before, where each color is one tissue, but we also have a little bit of shading, which then represents this probability. So it can be high probabilities to contribute to a certain tissue or, or low probability, and probabilities to really contribute to multiple tissues at the same time um, as in the statistical analysis. And so then if you go to these fairly low probabilities, you can see how the colors all fade into gray. And that means that in the video over here, um, we can now see the boundaries between tissues in, in this gray color, um, statistically speaking. We also use the TARDIS method to build um, a, an average mouse embryo. Um, and so this is now a virtual mouse embryo that uh, represents, uh, exhibits the average um, statistical shape of mouse embryos, the average uh, you know, cell density, cell counts, and even the average cell movement patterns you know, locally throughout the embryo. Um, and so by reconstructing this average embryo, we also immediately have access then to the information on the variability of the mental processes. Um, and we can also uh, use this information to measure how and to what extent a, an embryo with perturbed development, such as a genetic mutant, uh, differs from wild-type, uh, you know, deviates from, from wild-type development. Um, in principle, all we need to do for such an analysis is to use the same imaging tools to image uh, the perturbed embryo, the development of the perturbed embryo, and then use TARDIS to register it onto this uh, reference atlas of uh, mouse development. And so complementary to this information on uh, cell movements and cell fate, we also reconstructed uh, systematically cell divisions across the entire embryo. Um, and so for this purpose, we uh, collaborated with the groups of Srinivas Turaga and Kristen Branson at Chenelia, um, who used um, a method basically developed a method based on neural networks uh, that identifies the uh, condensation of the chromatin that occurs in the course of cell divisions and basically picks up the associated uh, changes in brightness and texture of the fluorescent marker uh, that we use in these live imaging experiments, this, this nuclear marker. Um, and so this is the result of using this technique at the scale of an entire embryo. This is actually the same um, image data set I've shown you before, the same visualization, uh, times visualization of embryonic development, but now superimposed with a color code that points out where all of the different divisions occur uh, using this color code. So there are several tens of thousands of divisions happening in each of these embryos during these 48 hours. I mean, they end up with 50,000 cells at the end. And um, there are interesting patterns in these divisions that um, are revealed, for example, by looking at a map that condenses all of that information into these, you know, uh, in, into this, this map of two axes. So we have the time axis along the vertical uh, dimension, and then along the horizontal dimension, uh, you can see space represented by the anterior-posterior axis. And so these are now all of the divisions from this one embryo, tens, tens of thousands of, em of cell divisions. We can see now how they cluster um, at the anterior and the posterior ends, where the colors become red. And so since the embryo is uh, in a constantly growing state uh, during this period of time, um, which means that the tissues are constantly elongating. Pretty much all of the tissues are growing along the anterior-posterior axis. That means that the cell divisions seem to cluster at the leading edge of these growing tissues, which then in turn raises the question of whether um, you know, this, this, this uh, particular location, the particular um, 
a placement of cell divisions actually actively supports um, the elongation of these tissues, or whether it's perhaps uh, uh, just much more easy, uh, much easier to um, find space for cell divisions at these leading edges rather than uh, in the middle of the embryo, where you might have a harder time pushing your neighbors uh, to the side. Now, um, finally, what I'd like to show you is um, um, one last biological analysis, which now ties together all of the different resources um, uh, we've looked at so far. Uh, information on cell divisions, you know, cell movements, and so like the image data you know, at, a, at a more macroscopic scale as well. Um, basically allows us to link uh, large-scale tissue morphogenesis, large-scale changes at the tissue level uh, to the local cell dynamics. And so there are numerous um, interesting mechanical processes happening during this 48-hour time, time window. Um, one example is concerns the, the neural tube is a tissue that we're particularly interested in. And so if you look at the image data from the inside of the embryo, um, so same image data set as before, but now looking from the inside and the surface rendering, so you can see the inner surface, so you can see the deepest tissues most clearly, you can see the traumatic morphological changes that give rise to the formation of the neural tube. So initially we have Again, the embryos are in this elongating state. Tissues are elongating, so the neural ectoderm is expanding along the anterior-posterior axis. And then eventually the neural plate is folding in upon itself to give rise to the neural tube. As shown here, um, you can see now the sippering of the neural tube. And at the same time, this video also nicely shows the formation of the somites, so these little um, blocks of tissue here on the left and the right side of the, of the neural tube. So, we're curious to understand what is happening at the single cell level locally um, in the embryo during these large-scale tissue rearrangements, these large-scale morphological processes. And we can investigate that now with our databases on, of cell divisions and cell movement patterns. Um, so by systematically going through the data and uh, uh, you know, thinking of the process as like this two-step process where we first have the extension of the body axis, we first have the elongation of the neural ectoderm, and then we have the folding process, we find the following thing. If you look at the cell divisions, initially during the phase of um, tissue elongation, uh, the divisions are for the most part um, aligned with respect to their division axis with the uh, rostrocaudal axis of the embryo. So, in other words, during the elongation of the tissue, the cell divisions are aligned along this axis of elongation. And then once the tissue goes into um, this mode of folding, um, the orientation of cell division gradually changes until eventually as we reach, reach a peak folding, um, the cell divisions are pretty much all oriented along the mediolateral axis. You can see that in the uh, rightmost panel. So it seems that basically at any point in time uh, throughout this tissue, cell divisions always are oriented along the axis of the, the dominant mechanical process in the embryo. So we were curious um, to see if this is a conserved feature across other tissues as well, maybe a more universal phenomenon. So we looked at neighboring tissues, for example, the somatic mesoderm, which sits right next to the neural tube. Um, and so this tissue, the somatic mesoderm, does not um, go through the switch from elongation to folding. And uh, we actually also can't see in the cell divisions uh, this kind of switch in the orientation of cell division axes. Uh, so that's consistent. Um, in the notochord, um, which is a tissue that sits right on top of the neural tube, um, 
um, cells are also, again, very close to the neural tube. This tissue is, but this tissue is always in an elongating phase. It's not really switching to folding at any point in time. Always elongating, and again, uh, cell divisions are basically aligned with the rostrocaudal axis, with the axis of the elongating tissue uh, throughout the entire time window. So uh, it seems that basically across all of these different tissues and time windows, uh, cell divisions are indeed aligned with their division axis to the axis of the dominant mechanical process that, you know, that, that happens in that tissue at that time. So it raises the question of whether cell divisions are um, systematically uh, placed and uh, you know, oriented to support this mechanical process, um, you know, really support it, or whether it's, so the, the, the causality works the other way around, and because of the forces that act on the tissue during these morphogenetic changes, the cell divisions are forced into a particular orientation. Um, the cell division axis are forced into a particular orientation. Um, so now that we have these observations and these you know, different hypotheses we can formulate, um, as a direct result of this dynamic atlas of mouse development, we can, in the next step, now design follow-up experiments, perturbation experiment, experiments that investigate this causality and basically allow us to look at the mechanisms in more detail. And so I'd like to uh, end on a note um, uh, that all of the tools we've developed in this uh, study, uh, the microscope, our computational tools, um, but also the data resources, so this dynamic atlas of mouse development, they're all available as free public resources. Um, typically, that's a bit difficult to achieve for a microscope. You know, how do you make it publicly and freely available? Um, but we were uh, fortunate enough to be able to partner um, with the Advanced Imaging Center at Janelia. And so the Janelia ASC basically now has a copy of our adaptive multi-view light sheet microscope that is freely available. You can contact them um, to, um, to, you know, to arrange for time on this instrument. And if you publish data obtained with this instrument, we also not co-authors on these papers. We really want to make it as easy as possible for people to use uh, these new technologies, uh, also long before they are available as commercial instruments. Um, so here's the website of the Chinese ASC. Uh, please feel free to contact them if you're interested in this method and uh, you think it might help you with your research. Uh, we also set up a, a, an atlas a website, the Chanelia Mouse Atlas, where you can download um, information and, in fact, the resources uh, coming out of, this, out of this work, the Dynamic Cellular Atlas of Mouse Development, uh, the Open Source Computational Framework, and technical blueprints of the microscope if you want to build your own microscope. Um, and then finally, um, thanks to the support of the Open Microscopy Environment uh, team and the, the team also behind the image data resource, you can even um, browse online and download uh, the complete four-dimensional image data for multiple embryos uh, through the IDR website. And so with that, I'm at the end of the talk, and I'd like to thank and acknowledge uh, the people who did this work. Um, um, pretty much all of the research that I showed you in, on these slides um, is the work of two uh, outstanding postdocs in the lab. Um, Kate McDowell, who is a biologist, um, she developed the microscope, um, did all of the imaging experiments, did a lot of the data analysis. Uh, Leo Gagnard, who is a computer scientist, he also worked on the data analysis and developed uh, a number of computational methods, such as the TARDIS framework for um, space-time registration of embryos, um, and also uh, the statistical method for cell tracking. Um, I'd also like to thank our alumni, Fernando and Loic, who contributed to this work. And I'd like to thank our uh, Janelia colleagues and our external collaborators. 
uh, for their support and the exciting and fantastic uh, collaborations. Thank you very much. Visit us at iBiology.org for more free talks from the world's top scientists. This video was brought to you with support from the National Science Foundation, the National Institute of General Medical Sciences, and the Howard Hughes Medical Institute.